Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show where we talk about short video games. You know, little short ones. The kind of things you can pick up in an evening or a weekend. Um, play on your iPhone, your console, your PC. And this week we are talking about a really interesting game that Laura brought to us. Uh, the Magic Circle. I'm your host, Reagan Kelly. And I'm joined this week, as always, by Laura Nash. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing terrific. I cannot wait to talk about this weird game. Yes, yeah, super, super weird. It is probably the most interesting, strange thing that we've talked about in a while, since maybe the Stanley Parable, which I know is a favorite of my other co-host, who's also joining us this week, Nate Heininger. How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. Beautiful segue, Reagan. That was perfect. That is that is my forte. <laughs> and, uh, of course, like I said, this week we are here to talk about The Magic Circle. Um, this is a game that I think has been getting a criminally low amount of press. Um, in fact, the first that I heard about this game... Uh, well, actually, the first time I heard about this game was Laura mentioned it in one of our previous episodes. But the name didn't ring a bell for me at the time. And something about the explanation that she gave kind of just... It, it didn't... It didn't click in my brain. Sorry, Laura. That's okay. Um, and so when I went, when I saw later on Twitter a couple of games reviewers, I think it was, I may be wrong, but I think it was Bob Mackey was uh, writing on Twitter something about this game and that he was shocked at how little coverage it was getting in the press and that he was working on a review of it. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so I chatted with you guys about it. Turned out Laura was already totally on top of it. And here we are. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that the main reason why this game doesn't get a lot of press is because people finish it. They go, that was awesome. I have no idea what to say about this. Yeah. Like, like we're going to, like, I could not imagine writing an article about this game. Like, we're going to spend the next hour doing our best to try to talk about what happens and what this game is about and what it means, but I don't think we're even going to scratch the surface. Yeah, let me set it up. This game is brilliant, it's amazing, it's super interesting, and it's going to be super hard to describe why, particularly without running all over spoiler territory. Every review you read of this game reads like some kind of sphinx mystery. It is really hard to explain why the game is so interesting without kind of doing a disservice to people who haven't played it. So this is probably going to be an episode where we're going to do a very early, very hard and firm spoiler break. If you haven't played this game, this game is available for Mac and PC, and it is on Steam. And it costs 15 bucks. There's also a demo, which I think is the best way to decide if you're not sure if this game is for you. Um, it's so weird that I think a demo is exactly what they need. And the demo, you can you can convert your progress in that into the full game. The demo is also on Steam. So head to Steam, download the demo if you haven't checked this game out yet, and try it out. We're going to do our best to talk about it without spoilers. But the best possible experience for this game would be go into this game with as little information about it as you can get. Well, that was the sensation I had. Um, uh, people who created uh, Fall in London, which I've talked about a few times, um, Fail Better Games, kind of blind by support of this. It was coming out of early access on Steam, and they said, we love this, you know, the story behind this game. Check out the Magic Circle, you know, very strong recommendation. Everything they've ever recommended to me has been extremely interesting, um, really good story or mechanic or both. So I blind bought it, which I don't normally do. Um, 
And I'm really glad I did because I don't think I would have, I probably would have slept on this game otherwise if I hadn't had a really strong recommendation by people I trust. Yeah. And it's a tough game to kind of get a sense of from, for example, the Steam page or any of the marketing that they've done. I mean, here's their brief description from the Steam page. In this darkly comedic story, you are the hero of an unfinished fantasy game, and your designers have failed you. Steal the power of a game god, trap their creations, swap their behaviors and body parts, crafting your own unique solutions to freeform puzzles. Can you ship a game from the inside? And it's got this incredibly bland black and white uh, Steam artwork with the text the magic circle, and then a square, because, you know, why would we put a circle on the Steam art for a game called The Magic Circle? And the trailer is just as mysterious and non-explanatory as the artwork and the description. It's a, it's a bit of an enigma. Well, one of the gags of the game is that the artwork is unfinished. You're dealing with a lot of unfinished text, unfinished assets as you're exploring. So I understand why they don't have great imagery to show, but it's a shame that a lot of the mystery and fun mechanics, you know, there's a lot of design work um, and a lot of really interesting interactions that they can't show because I think they consider them spoilers. Yeah, they want they want those things to be a surprise. And there are a lot of things just about the basic mechanics of the game that are real surprises, real delightful moments that that I really enjoyed discovering for myself. So before the spoiler break, we're going to talk a little bit about the setup for the game. But even this stuff is stuff that was really delightful to discover. So if you want the best possible experience, once again, go download the demo, give it a try. Um, Basically, the stuff that we're going to be talking about before the spoiler break is mostly stuff that you'd find in the demo and uh, would not. And once we get past the spoiler break, we're going to be talking about stuff that you would uh, you would need the full game to, to try or experience. Yeah, we've talked about the Stanley Parable already, but it's kind of like that where like as soon as you start to get the the tone of the game, which is not really expressed in those like very sterile explanations that you read right there. Um, mm-hmm. That in and of itself is like a spoiler. Like if you play the Stanley Parable for about 15 minutes, you start to see the kind of tone that you're they're going for. And not knowing it going in is, is really, really uh, satisfying. And I definitely recommend it. So go play this game. Let's, uh, let's set up the first scene of the game. When you boot up the magic circle, uh, you know, start it from your Steam library or what have you, we hear what sounds like the opening sequence of any sort of high-budget uh, fantasy game. You know, the music and the, the tone. And then we, see, we begin to see some artwork that looks kind of unfinished, like drawings on a whiteboard. Yeah, it's an animatic... A, a very rough storyboard yeah. Um, so that you can kind of get a sense of how things might animate, but it's super rough, super unpolished. Um, We're clearly and- seeing something totally unfinished. And we hear some narration from James Urbaniak, who I was super excited to find that he was in this game. I didn't know that until I booted this up, but he's the guy who does the voice of Dr. Venture from the Venture Brothers, among many other things. And he's always hysterical. Um, 
So I was really excited to find he was in this game, and he's really funny. Um, he's playing the role of Ish, the lead developer of the game that you are now playing. So Ish begins narrating, although what he's really doing is describing narration that he's going to record eventually. So we're really hearing very unfinished narration, and he's constantly interrupting himself to say things like, we'll need to rewrite that, or we'll need to fix that later, or we'll use another take another time. Um, but he describes the world of the game that we're entering, the magic circle. This is sort of a game within a game, because the magic circle is the name of the game that you, you know, human listening to this podcast, are sitting down to play from your actual Steam library, but it is also within the continuity of the game, a game that Ish, James Urbaniak's character, has been working on for most of his life for almost 20 years. It's a game that has gone unfinished for decades. So if you're wondering if Ish is a Moby Dick reference, absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. This game is Ish's white whale, and boy, howdy, has he been trying and trying to work on this for years. I could be wrong on this, but did you guys catch a lot of Doom references, too? Oh, there are references to everything. But yes, Doom is a huge one. And and I just think of Doom because of how long it took them to get the uh, was it Duke Nukem Forever that just recently came out mm -hmm. um, that was mm -hmm. in in developmental hell for like twenty years or so. Um, I think there was a lot of kind of jabs at, at at Doom throughout this too. Yeah, so we can clearly see that you know Ish are are sort of I wouldn't call him the main character, but he's sort of the lead speaking role of the game, um, the developer of the game that we're playing, the game within a game. Uh, the writer. Yeah, the writer. He is sort of a pastiche of these high-budget, uh, you know, high-flying idea game developers. So he's kind of your Gabe Newell meets Richard Garriott meets Peter Molyneux. Like, he's, um, uh, he's somebody who's spent his entire life working on games. He's got a huge following, but he's also really slow to ship things and is a bit of a disappointment to his fans at times. George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Uh, he, uh... I know. I love him, but it, it's an apt for those who don't follow behind the scenes games as much as we might. But somehow do follow behind the scenes of fantasy literature. Yes. There you go. <laughs> he, uh, he's also definitely focused on the story more so than the actual gameplay. Yeah. Uh, which is where the other kind of one of the other major characters comes in. The initial monologue is interrupted by Maze, who is uh, a co-developer of the game. Um, she's uh, we get some interesting backstory about her. She's uh, sort of came up through the pro gaming scene and uh, she seems like she's either his lead developer or at least a key developer on the project. And she's constantly seems to be cleaning up his messes. So as the player, uh, we begin playing through the first unfinished scene of the magic circle. And very quickly, uh, we hear, we overhear a conflict between Maze and Ish about whether or not we should include combat in the game at all. Ish is worried that if we put a, a sword in the player's hand, that they're just going to kill everything in sight and not take the time to experience his love, lovingly crafted uh, story. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a quote I wrote down because this game is full of really great quotable stuff that's really biting about about video games and gamers and the game gaming industry. But um, you know, he's he's very frustrated and he says, "Look at our hero." 
A lonely mute who can't even lower their killing hand. What sort of story could survive in these conditions? You see the character's hand out front with the sword, which is a classic RPG move. And it's true. You think of like Skyrim and other like long ranging RPGs. Like at some point you go on your rampage and just kill an entire town full of people and fully ignore like whatever's going on. Um, And obviously Ish is really concerned about that. I think also, you know, an important part of Maze's character is that she's kind of like been brought in, I guess, as far as I can understand, as a kind of a, a, a newer celebrity within the game's world to kind of continue the hype for what seemed to be an aging and kind of falling star of the game's world. Yeah, it seems like the company is really falling apart. And we get all of this just by overhearing the developers kind of chatting with each other. In the game world, the developers are represented by these sort of hovering eyes. So they see us as the player as maybe a playtester. They're not sure who you are, and they look at you and say, oh, is this one of the new playtesters to try this section of the game? And as we're playing through the game, they're sort of hovering around you um, chit-chatting with each other and as these sort of hovering space eye-looking things. You said chatting. I... Mostly it's fighting. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is um, this early stage is you're wandering around exploring, trying to find out what you can do. And that's a big feature of this game is it's super sandboxy. You can solve a lot of puzzles in whatever order you encounter them. There's a lot of different ways to solve things, um, which after the spoiler break, we'll be actually discussing with each other how we solve puzzles. But in this first section, you know, you are really just trying to find out what you can do in the world. Yeah, and it's not much at this point because the game is really incomplete. I mean, visually, tons of things lack textures and have that sort of like checkerboard look that something might as an unfinished asset in a video game. Um, Most of the dialogue is told in little title cards that pop up with tags that say things like temp. Um, And so you're clearly playing through this really broken and unfinished experience just getting from point A to point B. So we, uh, we get the sword and then immediately have it taken away from us. And then our next stop is a kind of hub for the game world. And every single spot that that hub goes to, there's a bunch of portals. They're all broken. None of the portals work. You try to use any of the portals and we get little messages saying, this quest isn't available yet. And it just gives you the key that you would have won by completing that quest. And so within just a couple of minutes, we're at the final boss. Totally accurate. I have been I have been working on games that are in that stage where all you're doing is reading the story and you're skipping all the quests. Totally felt real. Just yeah. FYI. Laura, I, I think you'll probably have probably connected with this a bit more than I did because I you know, my experience with incomplete games is mostly just, you know, the kinds of things that get released on Steam early access, which is to say, you know, hey, we've we've kind of got a a sandbox here have at it and we'll figure out what this is good for later. But usually they're not this fundamentally broken and kind of missing content. Well, often different parts of the game are built in isolation. So you'll play a lot of level one, level two, level three. I mean, I I usually did games that lasted max half hour. Mm -hmm. I think the longest game I built was an hour and a half. Um, But (laughs) are you under the age of five do you like dora you may play some of my games (laughs) wait no way you made the dora the explorer game that is my favorite game of all time 
<laughs> Dora's Great Big World is one of the uh, games I worked on. Um, available in the Apple Store five years ago. Um, anyway, you might build a level at a time, um, and there is often a version of the game where it's just the story bits strung together because the animators are trying to make sure that all of the um, you know, the lip syncing, the characters are consistent. So the part where you're skipping all the elemental games because you want to get to the end is completely a version of every game that you've seen. So it, that felt real to me. Like, yeah, of course the elemental thing is going to be broken, so they took it out for now. Yeah, and uh, and we very quickly get through that stuff and to what would be the final boss fight of the Magic Circle against Ava Nadir. Um, the story of the Magic Circle is this very sort of uh, you know, high fantasy thing where the star father has lost his magic ring that gives him power over life and death, and we have to win it back from the demoness of a Nadir. And so we go to fight Ava Nadir and are killed instantly in seconds because, yeah. of course, they've removed combat from the game. <laughs> but at that point, uh, Maze interrupts and tells us, hey, if you want to keep testing, um, you know, if you die right now, there's a bug where your body disappears, but you're still there in the game. So we're what the game calls ghosted. Yeah, the game has a ton of fun little, like, language that's within the world itself, and we'll kind of get to it a little bit more later, but, like, ghosted comes up a ton. And I, and I think they're kind of like... I don't know, playing off of like the internet culture a little bit of like buzzwords within you, like, oh man, you just got ghosted. <laughs> you know, like trying to make it like a thing, like, oh, he ghosted you, you know. Yeah. Well, in the in the world of the magic circle, and that is to say, in the continuity of the game but not the continuity of the game within a game, um it, when you are ghosted, you become invisible. But you also can then interact with other ghosted things. Anything in the environment that's been deleted is ghosted. It's still present in the system. It's just there as a sort of a ghost of itself. Yeah, and that, that means literally stuff that the developers decided should no longer be in the game. Mm -hmm. So when you get ghosted, you have are on equal footing with stuff that was removed entirely from the game. Um, Less accurate in real game development. Yeah. Well, sure, but it's a it's a it's an but important. Yes, it's mechan a great yeah. mechanic. It's a great mechanic for this game, and a very very pivotal mechanic as far as plot goes. And it's also at this point, once we are ghosted, that we meet sort of our spirit guide on our quest to ship the game from the inside, as the uh, as the description on Steam says. Um, we're uh, once we are killed by Ava Nadir, the credits roll. Which is great because, you know, it's over. The game is over already and the credits are rolling and even the credits aren't done. There's notes at the bottom of the credits saying, you know, hey, it's the intern's job to finish these. And then we're booted back to the Magic Circle title screen. Only this time, the title screen talks to us. And it kind of sounds like this. <laughs> <laughs> that was only a mediocre impression. It'll... Let's, I think Reagan and I can just continue this through the rest of the podcast. Hey, boss. <laughs> um, we meet Pro. And I actually didn't know his name until a little bit later. But uh, the character that we meet at this point is called the Old Pro. But the Old Pro is a mysterious sort of presence within the world of the game 
who explains to us, and he's clearly within the world of the game because he doesn't talk in terms of development or, you know, programming or shipping a game or even a game at all. The, um, the old pro tells us the gods have abandoned this world and it's your job to get revenge on the gods for leaving the world unfinished. So pro is clearly an entity from within the world of the game. Um, but he needs you to help him with whatever his goals are. It's a little unclear, but he, uh, he tells us that his goal, our goal, is to use the world of the game and the tools that these gods, the developers, left behind uh, against them. And the goal is to, to kill a god, or as he calls it, to ghost the sky bastards. See, that's what I'm talking about. It's that, that little language that only exists inside the game. Kill this or ghost the sky bastards is a great line. It is. Ghost the sky bastards <laughs> is so much better than like take down the developer's avatar. You guys want to start a band like a like a neo emo post punk band, Ghost the Sky Bastards? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> as long as there's a comma, Ghost, yeah. comma, the sky, the sky bastards. bastards. Oh, that changes it, but yeah. It does. Yeah. So that's pretty much what we get in the demo and pre-spoiler break. But Pro's job is to explain to us the mechanics of the game. And the next few minutes are just experimenting with those basic mechanics that we're going to be using in this sort of sandbox way to solve puzzles for the rest of the game. Um, we can... So we're dead at this point. We're ghosted. But Pro sort of tells us to drop into a sort of a crack in the world where we can absorb some life. And that's what he calls it anyway. And at this point, we actually see a kind of a boot up sequence. And uh, and then once your computer system reboots, uh, we emerge back out into the world and we have some new powers. We can take life from cracks in the world. It's this sort of glowing stuff. This is the most gamey aspect of it because there's no real like this is what it means in terms of game development uh, analogy there. The life system is just it's this the stuff you can absorb from these weird cracks in the walls. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's like the real world spilling into the dead world. I don't know. Yeah. Energy, yeah. I don't know. Ener yeah, yeah energy. And wavy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very colorful though. Um it's like a rainbowy metallic swirl. Yeah, it's it it's some kind really of well. I, I really wish they had given it some kind of more, you know, developery name, like maybe absorb this pseudo from the command line or something. Or code goo. Yeah. But really what it is, is a power. It's interesting because it, it first off functions as your life bar, but it's also a resource that you have to manage. So um, you absorb this life, which helps you get back from being ghosted. But then you can also put it into things. So if you see a ghosted object, let's say, for example, one of the early examples is a bridge that we want to go across. But that bridge was deleted, and therefore it's ghosted. But you can put some of your life into it to bring that bridge back. We can also use it to trap creatures. There are finders on the map, too. So you can, you can um, teleport to any of them. Um, one of my favorite things about the, um, the life bar is... Yes, the mechanic is super gamey, but the I liked a little bit that they used life just because they were hammering home that you are playing God mechanic. Yeah. Every time you're you are literally the buttons when you are in the menu, they say like, you know, take life or you know, fill someone with life. They're very 
it's dramatic. Their god complex <laughs> yeah. is very real, yeah. and it's very dramatic in this game. We are stealing the very power of the gods and using their unfinished creations against them. Yeah, and probably so, the biggest puzzle-solving mechanic is when you trap creatures by kind of sucking out their life. And then you can drop into a little menu inside the creature where you can change its properties. Um, this reminded me a lot of a game that I only just barely tooled around in a little bit. This is sort of a very light version of um, Hack and Slash in that way. I don't know if you guys have have seen that game. It's from mm-hmm. Double Fine. It's kind of a Zelda-style game, but there's like a – all the puzzle solving is about like um, programming and and like coding. And it's very much like this, like where you, you can – um, you have a sword that's sort of a USB stick and you can stick it into enemies and see their properties and then you can edit them um, or change their behaviors. It's a little more involved than this. This is actually really simple. So every creature has just a few properties. They've got a name, they've got a list of allies and enemies that you can edit, and then they've got um, properties for how they move, like for example, whether they walk on the ground or fly, and properties for whether they can be picked up and properties for how they attack or if they attack. And if they have a special move, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, like, I think the very first one is uh, what's called a howler. And they're, like, these kind of adorable little dog creatures. Um, but the very first one you see is evil, and it's running up to attack you. And it can kill you pretty quickly if you don't do anything. But it's pretty easy just with the left click of the mouse. You trap them, edit them, and... I don't know about you guys, but the first one I did, there's a button at the very bottom that says, take all properties. And you just strip the Howler of all of its properties other than its name. So instead of having attack melee, it now has attack none. Instead of movement ground, it now has movement none. And those get added to your inventory as a sort of currency for editing future monsters. So when you pull back out of the Howler, he is now like a really sad like soulless shell who can't move, has no friends, no enemies, and can't attack. And <laughs> it they just, just is there. It just is there. And actually, when you do that, um, the uh, the pro says something like about how you're you like, stripped it for parts. Yeah, you you stripped it for parts. Um, that was again a bad impression. Yeah, though. these are really terrible. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna keep doing it all day. Um, but it, it it's great because. You know, there'll be two or three howlers that'll attack you. Uh, and you can just strip all of them for parts, but maybe there's another creature later on that doesn't have an attack at all. Like, there's, let's say, a mushroom. And you can go into that mushroom and give it the movement ground and the attack melee and uh, ally as you. And now you have this little mushroom that's following you around and will attack anything that would have attacked you with its melee attack. And sometimes they get little... Um, graphic changes so if you give it like a fire attack now that thing that had nothing to do with fire now is kind of flaming a little bit or if you give it like something like uh flight it has these crazy gyrocopter things now it it's pretty cool And it's a kind of it, it kind of surprised me at first that it, there is a limited quantity of the of creatures, but also of these properties in the game world. Like if you want to give the power of melee attack 
to a creature. You have to take it from some other creature. Um, there's a limited number of these things around. And so a lot of the puzzles of the game are going to be about managing the number of these properties that you have and giving them to different creatures to accomplish different types of goals. So, you know, I want to kill that thing, but um, it keeps, you know, spawning this really powerful attack, maybe a flame attack. Well, I need to find something that's fireproof and use that property to, uh, you know, to my advantage. You can't use any of these properties yourself. You can only give them to other creatures. So uh, you kind of are managing a entourage of pets this whole game. Yeah, it's really a pet management game more than anything else. <laughs> you are a completely powerless god, but you manage a wonderful menagerie of your own choosing, and you can make the most ridiculous creations. Oh, I mean, man. The, my I, this is way yeah. ahead, but my final army was hilarious. Yeah, there's a <laughs> By ton the end of, of the really game, you have crazy the things. Best you people with you. Yeah, and yeah. they did some really great stuff with the interface to make it easy to manage this stuff. Um, you know, for example, you can pull up a map at any time and see the entire sandbox game world all on one screen. You can see the location of any creature that you've encountered so far. You can summon any creature that you've ever edited to you at any time. So even if it's not not your ally at the moment um, and not following you around, you can grab it from the from the map. And you have an unlimited inventory, so if you just strip everything for parts as you reach it, you can end up with a huge selection of stuff. So they really make it easy for you to get around on the map and easy for you to move these creatures around on the map so that really you, you, don't, you don't have to do a lot of backtracking to go and grab a thing that you forgot to get. Yeah, this game is as much puzzle solving as it is exploration. Because I, I really wouldn't say that this game at any point was too incredibly difficult. Like, the puzzles are there, um, and they require definitely some thought into the mechanics of the game. But this is still a short game that mm -hmm. can be completed in three to four, maybe five hours, depending on your willingness to, like, fully explore and go through the entire yeah. world. I'm, I'd be willing to say that I experienced basically everything this game has to, had to offer in about um, three and a half hours. Now, so far, what we've talked about is probably the meat of the game, but there are some real surprises that we simply cannot talk about until after the spoiler break. The end game, the conclusion, some of the later stuff in the game really throws you curveballs. There are a, a thousand and one different little weird surprises in this game. Um, and really, the best thing to do would be to stop pretty much at this point and go and play it if you haven't yet. And I will give you a moment. <laughs> Same thing. Two, three, four. All right. Start, start together. Start together. How was the game? Did you like it? Uh, did you enjoy the, the, you know, we like to talk about music when we can, and I won't say the soundtrack on this game is anything ridiculous, but one of the nicest little touches is literally the soundtrack of, like, the main open world. You hear the composer working with the musicians as they create the soundtrack. So you'll hear, like, <laughs> you'll hear, like an orchestra playing, and then you'll hear, like, yeah, that was good. Um, this time, let's try it again, but bring in the flutes a little bit earlier. And then they do the same thing. And then you hear the voice like, okay, I like that, but can we swell a little bit more about halfway through? And like, like they they definitely, the developers of this Three, game. Two. Yeah, they, they thought about everything. And yeah. 
Also, I got, uh, we've said the word unfinished a lot. Um, some of the art design definitely made me think of the game Unfinished Swan, which we did very recently. Yeah. The kind of, the kind of grayscale, um, like huge open white, like sky. And it's all black and white, except for the things that you sort of put your life into. So the creatures are color, but you know, even the sky, uh, as, as pro says, the gods can't even decide on the color of the sky. Like it's so unfinished. There's so many development squabbles that they haven't even given textures to most of the objects yet. And so basically you're walking around in this black and white world and suddenly there'll be bursts of color in the things that you kind of bring to life. It's great. <laughs> so any final thoughts before we hit the spoiler break? Well, this is one of the most unique games that I think we've done on this show. Um, I, I think that it falls in the same realm as a couple of games that we've done uh, that we've kind of already hit. Um, but its message and what it's trying to get across, which I do think is varied. This is not a game with one simple message um, is is thought provoking. The puzzles are fun. The world is fun. Um, and I really, really enjoyed this game. Mm -hmm. I think the game is much funnier than you might be thinking. I mean, we've talked a lot about the art and the philosophical approaches to this game. It's also just really funny to make this crazy-ass menagerie and walk around with this army of, you know, dystopian pets that are, you know, every single one's a different color and a different creature, and you've warped them beyond imagination, and you're going to go do something really dumb with them. <laughs> yeah, I died like a thousand times. Like, or I got ghosted. Yeah, yeah you're, you're basically, you know using a hammer for everything and your hammer is a giant army of insane pets and it's really funny it's a game about breaking a game in order to make it better um so it not only has these great sort of commentaries on video game development and video game culture which will be really funny to you if you are kind of keyed into that world if you follow gaming news or, you know, if you follow game development, this has a lot of really clever jokes. But also a lot of the humor just comes from that sandbox, things are breaking in weird and bizarre ways kind of uh, kind of element of it. So if you haven't already, give it a shot and we will see you on the other side of the spoiler break where we'll talk about our thoughts about the game's very strange and interesting conclusion and uh, also just chat a little bit about puzzle solutions and some of the details of the late game story. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen, your spoiler break. And thus ends the portion of the podcast where we sound like we know what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> I, I think we will actually maybe hold our own. Uh, I think yeah, between maybe. the three of us. Oh, sure. Between the three of us. The thing that really stuck out to me was there was a big surprise was that as we're playing through this uh, fantasy game, sort of, we're kind of playing through it and trying to use the elements of the game against its designers, um, we keep uncovering things from the history of this game. This game's been around for 20 years and it's gone through tons of revisions. And the biggest one is that we see very quickly that it used to be a science fiction game. A lot of these things that we're bringing back, these ghosted parts of the world, are like space station components that are weirdly jammed into the lava mountains and stuff. 
Yeah, and there's an entire like basement to the game of intersecting tunnels with elevators and lightning protected doors and giant mainframes and grids and teleporters and, and robots and and a tentacle monster that turns a corpse into a zombie. You guys saw that, right? That wasn't just me having yeah, a yeah, fever yeah. dream. Okay. Yeah, because then you had to trap the thing. Yeah, and yeah, and like a lot of the bad guys you fight it's really just like trapping them and then stealing their stuff but like there's a couple like actual fights that are are pretty interesting graphically that was like the biggest fun surprise in the game was when you start getting into these things that are parts of the game that were last worked on in the 1990s or or something like that um the graphics changed to this very convincing pixelated look and I thought that was the coolest look. I was like, this looks amazing. I would play a game that looked just like that. It was a really convincing sort of recreation of that sort of low resolution 3D of games like Doom. Um, but with certain elements that were clearly more modern. And it, it looked great. And the parts that happened in those areas were really neat too. Just um, lots of interesting sort of hints at what the story of this game would have been. Uh, like the element with the with the tentacle monster thing. Yeah, I think if you played uh, Duke Nukem 3D, that w- that was <laughs> yeah. anyone else? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. I played the hell out of Duke Nukem 3D. I think that was the time frame that yeah. they were looking at in this game. I mean, it's really interesting that um, you mentioned the twenty year history, but you kind of start stumbling upon more and more of the good or bad ideas the developers had. You know, sometimes you can. Um, unearth commentary some of the things you trap are glitches and you get an audio diary for example um there's lots of little hints at a lot more behind the surface that has been abandoned discarded or unfinished um and that's also where the puzzles lie so some of the puzzles are straight off boss battles but you don't have you know something's wrong with the boss they're not calibrated properly, and as such, you know, they basically will insta-kill you unless you don't find a way through it. Other things are just, you know, actual puzzles that for some reason, the world as is, you can't actually accomplish what you need to do without your many beast army. Yeah, everything you do has this sort of feeling of that moment when you accidentally clipped through a wall in a game and skipped a level. You know, everything has that sort of feeling of I'm not supposed to be here and yet this is kind of awesome what else can I do well I have no idea the game feels like you could solve the puzzles in infinite ways and I can't tell if that's just really good theming or if you honestly can yeah me neither you can let's talk about yeah it seems really sandbox it seems like you can really do these in almost any order and in almost any way so maybe we should talk about some of the puzzles what we liked and how we solved them well, one of the first ones I find because um, I, I found after I got out of the space shuttle um, and we're told, you know, go ghost the sky bastard. Um, <laughs> one of the first ones I found was the Hiver Queen. And that's because she has little group think parasitic creatures that will run up and attack you. And there are so many of them. And every time you kill one, there's still a little beam of light heading back to a source. So, you know, fall the yellow brick road. You go back and you see this flower creature, you know, mother hive mind, and a handy little developer note saying, oh, by the way, um, 
the melee attack will insta-kill you, pretty much. Yeah, I, I thought that was going to be super easy as soon as I found her. I thought, oh, no big deal. I'll just arm, because the hivers themselves aren't too hard to kill. I was like, no big deal. I'll just uh, have a bunch of these um, howlers go and attack her with melee. But no, those get instantly killed as soon as you send them after her. So it's clear we need, you know, something a little more powerful in order to kill the Hyper Queen. Yeah, and this is where, like, you know, each uh, player's kind of playthrough will be different because I kind of went that way at start and just kept getting attacked by the Hivers and was like, you know what, I don't think I'm strong enough for this yet. And I went a different way. And I actually acquired the um, Fireproof property from a rock mm -hmm. I found mm -hmm. and I used that on a howler to kill like the four flamers that are guarding a different tower and yep. they have the fire burst attack and I went through an entire other section I worked on the the uh, mushroom wizard which we'll get to and I went up this crazy space tower and I had completed several different things before going back to the hiver at this point armed with an army of um they weren't crocodillos. There's what were they called? They were called uh, like jagadillos. Jagadillos, uh, which are basically little lizards with big flat backs, which come into a play later. And uh, howlers who had fire burst, which was essentially a sort of short, short ranged fire attack. And so when I went back to the the Hiver Queen, I had these two guys that were fire burst and fireproof. And sent him on the Hiver Queen. I was never touched. Neither of my creatures died. And she was dead in like 15 seconds. And I was like, oh, that was easy. Hmm. <laughs> and went in and killed her. So it's just like the pacing of it. And yeah. I think that was a, a smart move by the developers. She is, I think, the natural first challenge. Mm -hmm. And it was only that for me, I was just like, eh, <laughs> I'll go a different way. That... Like, I was kind of overpowered by the time I went back to her. Well, she's a natural first challenge you cannot beat until you explore more. So yeah. it, it's natural to go in, think you can pump up all your dudes, run in, and until you've gotten the firepower or some other really good attack, you can't... I mean, I killed her also with fireburst. I actually wasn't able to kill her with the fireburst for some reason. I think maybe I just didn't have enough of the dudes because they kept getting mm -hmm. killed. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You had to I shoot them to the side so that mm. it didn't get whomped as like fast. Like throw them? That probably would have worked, but I didn't manage to make it work when I was trying, so I thought it was impossible. And so I wasn't able to kill her until I'd already explored uh, one of those science fiction-y areas, the one where you pick up that uh, parasite worm. And the worm has this parasite uh, special power. And basically, if something has that, then when they attack something, if they get in one hit, then they infect the you know, the creature they're attacking with this parasite and that kills it eventually. So it really just makes it, that's like, that's like an almost, it's not instant, but it's a for sure kill if you can get in one hit with anything. And so by the time I got that though, that was pretty late in the game, which was really neat because actually the Hiver Queen, like you said, it seems like the natural first thing, but actually it was one of the biggest challenges. And because of that, it really makes you go and explore the game world and, and search for those weird solutions. Yeah, I wanted to talk about getting that um, parasite, too, because I thought that was a really interesting moment. Um, basically, you enter into a kind of a little airlock that has a button to open up the airlock. But there's another one of the little developer logs where they're like, 
I accidentally duped the, uh, you know, duplicated the airlock button. I deleted it, but it still seems to be around uh, in the in the files. I, it's not a big deal. No one will ever see it anyway, right? And you open the airlock, um, and it kills you because you are alive, and now you've let in space air. Rather, you've let out. <laughs> you've let in the space air. <laughs> Actually, it works the other way around. You've let out your normal air and filled it with no air, and you die. Um, and because there was a uh, a deleted button, there's a way to close it. But in the in between that, you jump out into space, and there's a shuttle, and you get a little bit of talk about how this was a really cool element of the old space game story where. Um, a guy was infected and he decided to let himself die out in the shuttle rather than possibly infect the rest of the crew. And mm-hmm. it's one of the more interesting story elements of the game. It's like a tiny little short story built into the game. Um, but you kind of see what they were going for. You jump out there, grab the parasite, jump back in, or rather kind of, I just fell out of the shuttle and yeah, <laughs> and yeah. got, got popped back up at the top. Um, and then you press the, ghosted button to close the door fill yourself back up with life and there you are you now have this worm and it was just this little not even a puzzle but a nice little story break and a little bit of tone setting for what that um doom-esque game might have been like There's a few other puzzles that were pretty weird and interesting. The one that I probably got the most frustrated at, uh, the Nadir's prison. Um, you walk into, you know, you get past little flame dudes, and um, you stumble upon a poor mushroom wizard who is saying, you know, oh, I'll shield you from all attacks if you'll just get me out of this prison. Kind of a cool-shaped prison, too. It's a hand um, oh, yeah. covering um, the door, and the fingers form the bars which is pretty pretty tight looking. And then you, you know, you can go and, you know, I went back out, but there's two connected rooms. Um, the room next door to it has, luckily, a key. It's a ghosted key, and the developer says, you know, you, you fill in. Um, the issue is getting to that key. Um, apparently there's an error in the coding where there's lava on the ground, but they've accidentally um, set the hit area for the lava, the lava to have... Um, a very high height so it you know the whole chasm is full of you know big fire bricks because the developers like dude your hit area sucks i've marked it so that we don't walk over here um now there are creatures who are supposed to be kind of jumping or something but they just auto die to jugadillos Mm -hmm. so if you fill them back in they just spawn fall die spawn fall die um I had um, a Jugadillo with the power of float, which I threw out in the middle, and I knew I should be able to make that two leap, you know, the jump over. I probably aimed through, jumped about 40 times before I made it across. Mm. I just couldn't get the exact position right you know i tried to stand on a jugadillo and then jump on top of the jugadillo like i stacked them like i just like stacked jugadillos on all sides jugadillos all the way down i took my my jugadillos and just had them all stacked so i was like using them like a like a 
Arrest Development stair car. I think you I think you were putting way too much effort into this because yeah. there are two jugadillos that spawn when you enter the room at the top of the hitbox for the lava, but they're ghosted. But what I had done was I had made them fireproof before I go to them, then they fell to the floor, never to respawn. Uh, so I could not use them. Gotcha. Well, if you don't do that, you can you can just walk on them, but you have to ghost yourself first. But the problem mm-hmm. then is that if you ghost yourself, you can jump across this lava, but then you can't pick up the key. And so... But but you can edit the key. Because you're ghosted, you can't pick it up and carry it, but you mm-hmm. can go to it and edit it. And so all I did was jump across the jugadillos where they were, didn't have to touch a thing, and then edited the key to be my ally. And then I went and respawned elsewhere, which meant then that the, the key um the key actually jumped down to to meet me. It was really cute. So I did something entirely different. Um I also fireproofed those jugadillos, clearing the mm. path. So I ended up summoning about Four different rocks that I found throughout the map. Ah, the rocks. I threw them in the same place that the Jugadillas were, which ghosted them because the rocks can die. Um, <laughs> and yep. if they're not fireproof. Yeah, if they're not fireproof. Uh, which, again, would leave these hovering platforms that were ghosted. And for some reason, I had completely forgotten about the ability to, like, when you're ghosted, you can jump on ghosted things. So I would run, jump in midair, Give life to one of the rocks, (laughs) jump, give life to the next rock, land on that, and then jump in the proper area and grab the key. Wow, that sounds um, awesome. Well, it was, uh, you know, the one thing I've always said I'm good at in video games is platformers. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, this is my, here's my time to shine. And it Mm -hmm. still took me several times. And then when I was all done, I was like, well, that wasn't the right way to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did the super hard way to do it. And then I walked outside to uh, where I need to cross lava. And I was like, oh, I have the damn rocks. And then I was like, oh, right, I can ghost. So I did the ghosting trick on the lava mm-hmm. after doing it. Because I was like, oh, I, this is clearly not how you solve this puzzle. Yeah. Oh, man, the that one, I uh, that took me just crossing that lava, too. You get a cool glove um, that, like, if you have an ally, you can point you can like set a wipe a waypoint and those allies will go to that. Um, and it's actually necessary to solve a puzzle really early on to teach you the mechanic. But also if you're standing on the top of a jugadilla who have a perfectly flat back and you set them to fire, you set, you set them to fireproof, you can stand on their back and you can click the other side and they will just ferry you right across that lava. Or, mm-hmm. which I learned after trying to create a crazy bridge of rocks that just would not work. <laughs> and I eventually rode my little Jugadilla friend to safety. And Yep. There was writing of Jugadillos later. Yeah, that's what's so cool about this game, at least, like, I, and I think, I wish there was more of that. Like, Yeah, me too. I mean, I don't say that often, but, like, that sort of middle third of the game where you're solving these puzzles using the these mechanics... I felt like it was over all too soon. I was really, really enjoying it. And when the game takes a really dramatic turn in a moment um, to a sort of a different gameplay style, I really enjoyed that too, and it was really cool. But I also kind of wanted yeah. more of this. Well, this is the bulk of the game, though, because once you... Um, and I think we should just get to how we each killed the Sky Bastard. Yes. Um, once you kill the Sky Bastard, there is a dramatic turn. But, it, I mean, that's like you're about a half hour done away from being done with the game, depending on how much time you spent making your level, which yeah. we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so basically you, you go around the world uh, 
completing these little mini challenges, which is the ultimate goal is to acquire enough power to bring down the sky bastards. And I want to know how you guys did it. Mm-hmm. So to set up the scene of this, um, you know, we know that our goal from the very beginning, we know that our goal is to ghost this sky bastard. Who, but the, the sky bastard that we have our eyes on is the only one who seems to be in a relatively the same place most of the time uh, is Coda. She is one of the interns and she's really, uh, you know, she's a she's a pretty important character in the game, although we haven't talked about her yet much. Um, we talked about Ish, the lead developer and writer of the game. And also uh, Maze, who seems to be, uh, you know, a key developer, and she's sort of more the, you know, gameplay-oriented rather than story-oriented one. Um, Coda is a brand-new intern who absolutely worships Ish and his past creations and is super excited to be working on the project with him and uh, really flatters him. And because of that, he keeps giving her different responsibilities and through most of this middle section of the game, her avatar, the little weird floating eye with her name tag on it, is sort of floating around in the middle of some nothingness out past one of the cliffs that we can't really go past because there's just void. And um, uh, she's also protected by a couple of flying whirly birds, which are these sort of flying turret machines. And um, so in order to ghost her avatar and take its powers which is our eventual goal, we have to get across this big empty chasm and defeat or ghost the whirly bird and also then ghost her. And it's very difficult to ghost things that are flying, more so things that are flying and shooting at you. And we have to do it uh, at a great distance, basically, because we are, you know, we can't stand on nothing. We have to be either able to fly or get to it somehow. So how did you guys manage to get over to Coda's avatar floating in the nothingness? And then how did you kill it or or her and the whirlybird? I killed at a distance and then went over mm-hmm. to see my see what my justice had wrought. So I um I outfitted my whirlybird, I believe, with a railgun mm. um and set it to attack whirlybirds first. How did you get your first whirlybird? Um in the space shuttle, in the space uh, There station. is one whirly bird way down deep in there. See, I, that's, yeah, I think I missed. I got, I went about it in a very weird way, way to acquire flight and go through that. So, yeah. sorry. So, Securitron, Securitron and Whirly Bird were in the same area. And so, when I got those, you know, the gun and Whirly Bird, I, first I gave the, um, the gun to the flying rock and then was like the floating rock just for fun. And then I was like, no, I think end game wise, I should give the best weapon to the thing that can fly. Hmm. Um, I mean, truth, I could have made anything fly across and then kill. Um, but I um, I had, I thought it was more poetic justice to have the whirly bird kill its own. Did it kill it pretty successfully? Because I was concerned that if I just sent one flying creature off to kill this other flying creature, that it wouldn't be successful. And so I, I went way overkill, but it worked pretty well for you. Um, I had to take out the whirly birds first. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I had and um, I made a couple like jumping points and rode my little jugadillo over. There was a lot of swapping between who could fly and who yeah. couldn't. Mm-hmm. I rode um, a flying because, rock most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that was the problem that I ran into was that I only had um, one flight. Yeah, I had I had um, I had two, and I don't remember how I ended up with two. That was the biggest struggle was that I wasn't sure. 
how I would manage to get myself across and get my like attack pet across. So what I ended up doing that was really successful and just felt awesome was I went and gathered up all of the hivers. There are about 30 of them. And I used the hiver queen's groupthink ability. Mm-hmm. Groupthink lets you put uh, basically anything uh, of a like kind gets all the same powers or abilities. So I could give flight and a railgun to one hiver. And then I had suddenly a a cloud of 30 hivers buzzing around my head, each one with a railgun. And then I had a flying rock that I was riding on. So I rode the flying rock over. And by the time I got there, got across to where the Whirlybird and uh, Coda's avatar were, the enormous cloud of railgun toting bugs flying around my head had already made very short work of them. And uh, it was like it was like a, an explosion. There were about forty five guns going off, and it was um, it was really awesome. That's pretty. That's pretty fantastic. That uh, I went about it in an incredibly different way than both of you, and that's why I, this. That's what's so cool about this game, and I do believe that like there's probably a million different ways that you could not a million, but there's a lot of different ways you could solve these. Uh, I could not the like. I never found flight and I really, I really felt like I explored everywhere, but I was just missing one door or something to get down to the bottom where you found flight and where you found, I didn't even know there was a rail gun. So it's like one little area that I missed, but I did find the tractor beam and I never the, found the tractor beam. Ah, the uh, tractor, Securitron. the mm. tractor beam was awesome. Killed me a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, uh, I took the tractor beam I amassed an army at so like it, it, it's pretty dramatic looking you know you're at that like cliff face looking up at the sky bastard <laughs> and I got an army of jugadillas with uh flame burst and an army of howlers with melee attack and I took the tractor beam I set it right on uh the edge with maybe a few feet of gap in case it got knocked off and I set its target to the whirly birds and it sucked in one at a time, a whirly bird, brought it right into where my whole army of, of juggadillas and howlers would bring it down. I then stripped it of its parts, which was flight, uh, brought down the other one, stripped it of its parts, which were flight. And then this is the only part that was a little anticlimactic for me because I had my mushroom wizard with me, who was kind of like my guy mm-hmm. that I used a lot. And I gave him flight. And I gave him, I had another mushroom over there, and I gave him groupthink just to see how it worked. And I set them as our enemy to the Sky Bastard. I'd already killed the Jugged, or the, the Whirlybirds at this point. So I had two things the Mushroom Wizard and a small wizard, or small mushroom. And I set them just to see how it worked as the Sky Bastard. And I didn't expect them to actually like get up and go. I thought it would only be like a proximity thing. But I exit the editor and they just start flying towards the sky bastard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, all right, that's kind of cool. I like, I doubt they're gonna they're gonna win, but whatever. Like, I'll let them go out there and I'll just summon them back whenever they're mm-hmm. done and get their powers back. And they go over there and I thought they both got killed. And so I was like, all right. So I go and I amass an entire armor of flamers, an entire army of mushrooms, an entire army of 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 howlers. 
and I get all of their powers in line, all ready for the final shoe to drop where I was going to apply groupthink to like hmm. the flamers just mm-hmm. as the tractor being pulled in the Sky Bastard. I had a whole plan, but none of it works. I'm like, what did I do wrong? So I get on my flying rock. I fly over there. My single mushroom wizard and mushroom head killed the sky bastard. Aww. And because of the angle at which it had happened, I couldn't see that, uh, that it was dead. Like I, I, I could see that it wasn't moving, but I thought it was still alive. It's like, Oh, all right. Well, stand down army. It's already done. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, uh, which I mean, I don't regret it. It was fun. Like, you know, organizing all that stuff. But it was a little anticlimactic because yeah. I expected the Sky Bastard to put up a bigger fight than a single mushroom wizard. <laughs> One, two, Having killed the Sky Bastard, I thought we were done, but we're not done. And in fact, the game is about to take some really strange turns. This is the weirdest, like, last act of a video game I've ever seen. Yeah, I can't think of any game that has made such a big... I mean, this is like a 180 turn in um, pretty much not only in gameplay, but I would say in tone. Um, like some of the gameplay stays the same a little bit, but even the way it's presented, the way you go about it, um, how you're controlling your character, how everything works is totally different. It takes the minor viciousness that's been sprinkled throughout the game. There's been hints of this dissension, this, um, you know, creepiness through the audio logs of developers, but you're kind of going on your merry way and playing. When you get this end game, you suddenly are thrust just into the developer's world. And they're presenting to the public, and, you know, at the end of this game, you don't really know who's worse, the public or the developers. Yeah. Yeah. So story-wise, we've been seeing throughout the game the sort of interplay between these three characters. Ish, the developer who only wants to tell his story. It's his life's work. He's been working on it for 20 years. Maze, the gameplay-first, industry-oriented, hardworking developer who really just wants to get off this sinking ship. Uh, and is willing to try to get herself fired in order to do it. And uh, Coda, the bright-eyed fangirl who just wants to see the uh, see the game finally released and is becoming more and more frustrated with the game's creators for not living up to her expectations of them. Yeah, and it, we should say she was hired from the forums. She was basically like the forum director, like ultimate. She wrote fan fiction. She was like a collaborator of fan fiction, like every stereotype of like uh, fangirl, fanboy. Like she, she was the ultimate goal of anyone who sits on a video games website and writes their like opinions. She was literally hired to help create the game. Yeah. The community manager becomes the actual intern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we also, of course, have one further interest in the end of the game, Pro, or the old Pro, who it seems only wants to get rid of the gods. And he thinks that, probably correctly, that the only way to get rid of them is for is to embarrass them so that they'll stop working on the game or the world. And so we're uh, – so f- 
at the end of the game, we come to E4, or, you know, E3, but E4, uh, a presentation where they're going to be showing a gameplay demo, a live gameplay demo to the public for the first time. And it's a make or break time for the game because they're out of money. And if they can't get people interested and some kind of investment, they are going to be out of jobs. And, um, the gameplay demo that they're about to show involves just a very brief sort of cutscene of, uh, the player walking into a palace past some guards and picking up a baby. The baby is, um, the child of the star father or something. The like Messiah that. baby. Yeah. yeah. And it's supposed to be like, they've really built up that the first game this guy made is huge and just a 30 second trailer of like the character from the first game coming out and picking up a child would be like groundbreaking and everyone would lose their shit about it. it it's on a level of like, imagine if they released a Half-Life 3 trailer at E3. That's what this would be. But our job is to screw that up. And so uh, we, and actually what, this is the first time there's any time pressure in the game at all. Um, we hear the developers backstage talking about the game. We are going live with this gameplay demo in, what is it? Like it gives us maybe 10 Five minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah. And within that time, you have to find a way to ruin the demo. And for the first time, we are not the hero. The hero is scripted and we have a sort of a developer's eye view we are one of the sky bastards now and our job uh, in this segment is to within that time frame um, go in and edit the creatures that would be the guards and the baby to wreck the demo uh, what did you guys do <laughs> yeah and the, the, there's also uh, i just want to say coda's also trying to get maze to you know murder the baby for pr stunt so you're like, you have to run and you're like, do I protect the baby? Do I have the guard? Like, what, you're not really sure what your goal is other than sabotage. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so I gave one of the guards, first of all, just attack the hero. And it's pretty funny because they, they start the game and you kind of see in a couple different, it's almost like what four different screens where you see the different perspective from a couple different characters' point of mm -hmm. view. And from the and for the first time, we actually see the developers, but we don't see the developers. We see a sort of a motion camera view of them, like what you see when you see like a developer uh, console for Connect. I don't know if you've seen that, but there's that sort of 3D depth camera effect where you are seeing sort of a pointillized view of things, which I thought was a really funny way to kind of finally have us see the developers, but we can only see them as a computer would see them. Yeah. Um so I gave the first guard the ability to attack the hero. And it's pretty funny because he's going through and they're like, what? This guard's not supposed to attack. Oh, well, combat. Who doesn't love combat? And they start to give it combat. And then I gave the baby the ability to fly, melee attack, and also its target was the hero. So the um, hero kind of bursts into the room and the baby is sitting there with like a helicopter sprouting out of the top of its head and an axe in an axe in its hand i did exactly the same around. thing but i did it in a panic because uh my initial plan was we'll just prevent him from getting to the baby and so i set up one guard with every attack power i could muster plus groupthink so all of the other mm -hmm. guards had it but the hero 
was smart enough to kill the first guard, the one that I had loaded up with all this stuff plus groupthink first, which meant that then after he killed that first guard, all of the other guards stopped. And so I had to immediately rush to the baby and load it up with flight and a railgun, hoping that it would still wreck the demo, which I just barely managed to do. It was really kind of neat to have the same stuff from earlier in the game, but with this different perspective uh, and also with this time pressure. Yeah, and um, the... I, I set up the guards to kill the hero, and um, they're pretty powerful guards, but the hero kind of supercharged the weapon basically to insta-kill. Yeah. Like, so the they cheated, um, and then I, I'd already souped up the baby. Um, <laughs> but the Soup. funny thing was, like, you know, after souped the baby the starts baby. attacking the hero, the guards, like, some of the guards, you know, summoned more guards, which then started attacking the baby, like it's a whole mess. Yeah, it, everyone really was funny. talking. There's just blood everywhere. A helicopter baby. It was with great. An yeah. And we're the whole time we're hearing the commentary of the developers and the sort of noise of the crowd, which is growing more and more confused, and the developers are becoming more despondent and poor-ish. By the end, is you know wailing. Yeah, but that's not even truly the end because at this moment. Uh, Coda takes this opportunity to kind of stage a sort of an insurrection. And uh, you get the sense that this is the kind of... Her speech at this moment was kind of what you often see on forums and hear from fans who finally become dissatisfied with the creators of stuff that they love. You know, it's it's the sort of fanboy rant about why on earth hasn't Valve released Half-Life 3. They've had decades to do it. They have all the money in the world. I'm disgusted with these people. Don't they care about their fans? Yeah, they're They've literally lost touch. They're literally terrible people. They're like it is awful and they are personally offending me. And they deserve to die. Or the or the reaction to, you know, Peter Molyneux over basically his whole career or, you know, it's it's that moment where but instead of just happening on a forum, this is a reaction that these folks are having. You know, she's come in not just herself, but she's there with everybody from the forums. And they all stand up and literally aim little laser pistols, which are actually a reference to the laser pistol, you know, the laser animal creature. What was it? The Securitron? Securitron. Yeah. Earlier in the game. And they're kind of staging a... Uh, uh, staging a, a coup, and it's it's a not too veiled death threat, telling Ish that if he, you know, if they don't get their demands, that they just don't know what might happen. That she told everyone to bring these toy lasers, but there's a real chance that someone might have brought something not as playful. And, and their demand is that he turn the game over to the fans, essentially put it into the public domain. Um, she says, you know, we've written better fan fiction than you'll ever write an actual script. Uh, our mods on your original game are better than anything that you'd be able to develop today. Give the game to us and we'll take over and you are irrelevant now. And then we get a monologue from Ish that is the longest monologue I've ever seen in a video game. And it's pretty shattering, but also kind of confusing. 
Yeah, they do some really good things with it. I mean, it's basically a I, I, I can't there's no way to sum it up really because he he hits a lot of topics, but it's mm-hmm. I, I, I guess, you know, one of the prevailing themes of it is that, you know, he's basically saying I'm the one who's putting myself on the line to create these things. I'm the one who is is doing and you're the ones who are criticizing and mm-hmm. you know what gives you the right to tear me down this far when who like what gives you the right to literally threaten my life over something that I care about more than you would ever imagine. Yeah, and you know he's oh you love my work that's great, but this is also 20 years of my life. It's only my entire life's work. Um, you know, the fact that you love it doesn't give you ownership of it. And he's slowly kind of breaking down. Um, and you're, you have the opportunity as the player to shut this off at any time. And the farther he gets into the monologue, the the more he sort of dares you to shut it off. Yeah, and the probably I think the the most powerful part of it is as this speech is going. So it's still all in mocap. Again, we're just mm-hmm. seeing these kind of like outlines of people. Um not the actual people, but you see the crowd. Um it starts with like probably 30 or 40 la- like red lasers going at his body and as he moves around the lasers trace him. But the longer he talks, we just start to notice that some of the num- some of the lasers have just start going away, and then you start seeing people in the first and second row getting up and leaving. Even um, Coda has sat down. Mm-hmm. She still has her gun pointed at him, but she's sitting down and watching him. Yeah, and and I think it's a little bit of a in a form of reverence because again she has spent her entire life basically worshiping this guy, and though she has basically planned a coup, like. This is also like her hero having a meltdown. Yeah, having a meltdown. So she sits and watches it. And by the end, though, if you go the whole way, which I can't imagine anyone who plays this game. Yeah, if you're at all interested in it. It it would be hard to skip this. Although in some ways, I feel like the developers almost wanted us to. Yeah. Uh, By the end, though, everyone is gone. And it is Mm -hmm. just him pleading at you because he about halfway through has acknowledged you as the the being that demands control mm-hmm. um, right. and he's pleading with you to kill the feed and be done with it. He's in an empty hall, I guess looking at what's basically a computer screen or maybe a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And that's it for ish. He is done. Uh, probably both uh, career wise and that's his last moment in the game. Um, and when we, when we leave that E3 hall, we are transported back to the game world where uh, Coda is speaking to now a whole swarm of Sky Bastards. Everybody from the forums has been invited to come take a hand in finaling, finally finishing uh, the game that, you know, the team uh, wasn't able to finish. We are a legion. Mm-hmm. And she gives yeah. an inspiring speech. We're going to all pitch in. We've got writers. We've got coders. We've got graphic artists. We're all going to pitch in. We're going to finish this thing. Who's with me? And then all hell breaks loose and the trolls tear the world apart, literally. Think of it as a Minecraft server that went from private to public. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody just goes in and destroys it. 
and you're you're looking at the actual map that you just played forever. You know, you spent like two or three hours on, and it just gets literally torn dismantled. To yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the final sort of moment of I think message of the game. And there's a still there's still surprises left in terms of gameplay, but like I feel like this is really where the game makes its final point, which is I think it's easy to look at these flawed human beings that create the games that we play and think, why aren't they doing better? Or why aren't they doing things the way that I want? And maybe if only they would listen to their fans or if they would do this or that, then things would be better. But at least in this one example, even though this guy is clearly a screw-up who can't ship a game to save his life, it's not because he's a bad person. It's it's just the realities of the industry and his own high standards that he can't meet. And when he turns that, you know, turns the keys to that kingdom over to others, it doesn't get any better. In fact, it goes to hell really fast. And I think that's sort of the message they have here is like, have some sympathy for these people at the helms of these, you know, ships that you simply can't steer. I mean, this game has a lot to say about um, auteur theory. I know it's, it's a you know million dollar word, but it's basically the idea that there is a visionary. There's a single person that is kind of leading force and defines what a game or a art, you know, a piece of art or a movie is about. And I think that the game has a lot to say about figureheads and what happens when you when you tear down the figurehead and you open it up to everybody. Um, are you inviting chaos? Um, is that figurehead someone who is organizing the world or destroying it? Because it also, you know, if you have one person helming, all of their flaws are now embodied in the game i mean there's you know dad and Aang take a drink in yeah. this game his own daddy issues are the very first thing he mentions and they they come you know he keeps working it into the story his anxieties um you know define the theme everything about the game his perfectionistic tendencies have delayed the shipping but at the same time they're also creating the idiosyncrasies of the world so at the end of the game when they open it up to everybody i don't think it's saying that like open source is bad or no. there's something that simplistic it, it's saying you know coda was kind of trying to take have everybody altruistically extend one man's vision but at the end of the day the world won't care about one man's vision right <laughs> i think yeah, that's I, part of it i think it does a really good job of the first four hours of the game is like Look how stupid game developers can be. Look how like inconsistent they can be and look at the infighting and look how self uh, you know absorbed they can be. And they are the it, capricious gods of their own tiny yeah, little worlds. Yeah, they they create games because they want to have control. And then through Ish's speech and through the fan base destroying the game from within, it turns it back on its head and says like it's it's a balance between the two. Yeah, and it's it's just a reminder that you know there's there's these hard realities of industry. You know, it, creating art as a commercial product is a flawed thing. But so luckily, this game does not end in the destruction of the world. This <laughs> right. is not revelations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is yeah, and it's the world this continues. portion. It's this portion where I was saying at the very beginning of the podcast that like this is a discussion that merits its own p 
podcast and its own time that I think a lot of people have good and valid opinions. And like, Laura, you've been in the industry more than either of us. And, and it's something that needs to be talked about too. Like there's a lot of like witch hunting and, and terrible things that are said on the internet about developers and the people who play games on both sides. And I, and I appreciate what this game is trying to accomplish. Um, but we could never come to any strong conclusion about like, what was this game's one message? Cause I think it's more just about the discussion than it is the answer or the question. I mean, it's about the dangers of hero worship and the, dangers of being that hero you know there's flaws on both sides and there's you know I, I think this game could be very cynical and instead it just says things and kind of lets it sit there yeah and then we get to the final final ending which we get our buddy pro back who's like whoa 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 i just wanted you to get the gods out I just wanted this game to be done so i could exist in my own world but now you have it tearing apart like literally my world is being because he's an entity within this world he said i need you to cut through all this and make a game that i can exist in that can be shipped that doesn't have them that it's created by you because you understand me you understand this world mm-hmm. make me a game and then it turns into a really strange uh, but fun little like you know, Almost game, like dungeon game dev. building yeah. game dev simulator. Yeah, yeah. it's like the most. So this is this is a game that's had many really sudden, bizarre turns. You know, it turns from seeming like a unfinished but straightforward action fantasy game turns to this strange, you know, uh, Tron esque. You know, fight the system from inside. I am I, I am Tron. I fight for the user kind of experience. And then we have this this turn towards the end where we're, you know, actually playing more as the developer and trying to wreck another developer's work. And then finally, it extends that developer thing to try to do something constructive with it. And we have a completely different game from everything that's come before in the last 20% of the game. So we have to lay out a dungeon with a series of tiles. We have to place our creatures in that dungeon. And then we let Pro, who is basically uh, playing through as you know on a track as an AI, into the dungeon as a uh, sort of AI hero. And it monitors Pro's engagement level with the game. So now, not only have has it made us uh, sympathize with Ish for you know having his life's work torn apart, but now we have to do Ish's job, and we have to keep the player engaged uh, by placing things in this very small sort of simulated game level. Yeah, it's pretty silly. Like you get to lay ten tiles basically, which are you know an assortment of like high fantasy or cave or whatever, where you you're making your little dungeon that. Um, you place the different doors and it's on a track like Reagan was saying. Um, and there's really only a few options. There's like guard, guard on patrol, treasure, health, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you can spend a lot of time with it, but even still like the, like I, I made one dungeon. Uh, I spent some time trying to make it a cool layout. And I thought about like the guards and the treasure. Um, and as uh, pro is playing it, he, he's like been like, 
like this is really fun or this is really boring. And he has a, like an entertaining and boring meter mm-hmm. at the bottom of his his bar and like killing a guy gets it, it's like exciting. And then mm-hmm. if you kill too many guys though, it's like combat fatigue, not exciting. And it mm-hmm. goes down and you're he rates you at the end of it. So what uh how did you guys do on that? I really did pretty well. Um I got a ten out of ten. And uh, he was very excited. He said, you're you're the new god. I thought those old gods knew what they were doing, but, you know, you're the real deal. And that was very, very nice. Um, the trick I found with that was that you have a very limited amount of life, you know, the resource that you use when you place things. Certain things cost a lot, like adding health. Um, but uh, if you don't put in enough challenge, then he'll get bored. But if you put in too much challenge, he'll be killed. So um, the trick was to put in lots of challenging enemies paired up with lots of allies for the hero and have them fight so that the hero barely has to do anything at all. He uh, basically just strolled through my dungeon and watched a bunch of fights happen. And then it was a 10 out of 10. And I actually thought that was kind of an interesting commentary. I was like, you know, that reminds me of like a Naughty Dog game. So he just live like streamed his way through? <laughs> more, yeah. more or less. I mean, he, he killed a couple of dudes, but mostly he watched Howlers kill guards. And because he he didn't really have to take part in that combat, but he got the thrill of it anyway. And, uh, and he gave it a 10 out of 10. So I was pretty proud of it. That's funny. I just evenly spaced guards and treasure chests. Um, which by the end of it, I, I kind of tried to develop like a, a, um, a progression where it started off kind of easy with a little bit of reward. And then by the end of it, there was like a big boss battle with like six guards and like 12 treasure chests if you beat it. Um, and what ended up happening is he got kind of bored with the combat. And by the end of it, it just said, I was, you know, combat fatigue, negative. And I got a seven out of 10, um, but I went ahead and shipped it anyway. Laura, how about yourself? First time through, um, I was experimenting, and I wanted to see what happened. I got 8 out of 10, and then I made some tweaks. I got 10 out of 10, but not. But I didn't do the uh, walkthrough. I hard-earned my 10 out of 10. Hmm. Um, I think for... Yeah, for me, I, I just wanted to... Um, the first time, I, I, I was really interested in the rules of how they were measuring flow. So mm-hmm. I, I yeah, actually... Really interesting. You know, after I did 8 out of 10, I actually tried to make a really bad one to see what happened, you know, go down to like 3, and he was really mad at me. Um, I I wanted to experiment with it, because I I found that really entertaining. Yeah, I think that this could be a whole game. Like, I I actually thought this was a really clever uh, interface for this, to kind of give you the game designer's experience without requiring any game designer's knowledge or, or, you know, tech. And... I really enjoyed playing around with it, which is great because it gives you the option to jump back into this and do it again and again if you want. It probably would get old after a little while. I I really, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time building and tweaking my initial dungeon, but um, I probably wouldn't go back to it again now. But, I mean, I could totally see this being a whole game. It reminded me a little bit of things like Dungeon Keeper uh, or other games where you sort of build a dungeon and then, like kind of have to defend it. Um, but in this case, rather than having to defend it, you're just trying to manage the engagement of the uh, of the hero that's playing his way through it. Really interesting concept. Um, and then that's it. Yeah, you know? that's it. Like, I mean, there's some post-credit stuff where... Um, so basically, 
you know, the pro's happy. He has a world to exist in. The game actually gets shipped as the the, the game magic that, circle. Yeah, yeah, it's the game. And um, there's some silly stuff like you know, Coda was a community manager, so you can go and watch Coda live stream the game. That was my favorite little touch at the end. Yeah, yeah. It, once you finish your your game and you ship it, it boots you to a desktop. Actually, with uh, like what I thought was pretty funny about it was that. It has some touches where, once again, it's looking at your actual computer. So it's got a little My Computer icon at the top that said, in my case, Reagan's MacBook Pro. And I was like, oh, yeah, this, this is really funny. And uh, and there's a folder on your desktop that has a video in it of Coda playing through your level. And she's not as good at it as uh, as Pro was, but she live streams it. And it was pretty funny because she's kind of talking. She's clearly lost her job at the developer, um, but she's still a fan. And so she's streaming the game on Twitch or something like it for her fans. Probably Switch or something. Yeah. And it was actually really kind of cute. And I I felt good about it because even though she had, you know, kind of quit or lost her job in disgrace – she still enjoyed – she was won over by playing through my weird little game that I had designed. And she had a good time. And I thought that was I thought that was kind of a nice way to end the Well, and she kind of is like, is this because of my work? Maybe maybe some of my work might have seeped through and, and yeah. that's why this game is so good. <laughs> and also, I would love to come back if you'll have me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, so – and that's – I mean, that's, that's it. it really. You know, and again, we've – started to scratch the surface of the depth that this game gets to but we certainly have hit every point of the game mm-hmm. <laughs> every every uh step of the game um yeah i can't wait for more people to look at this game and start talking about it because it's really silly that it's gotten so little attention given the depth and quality of this game it's a triple a feel in a very short duration package um, with some really, really off the beaten path stuff in terms of gameplay and tone, and it's it's so unique. Like I, I think anybody interested in video games should play this game. Yeah, uh, that's the same kind of um, promotion I had for the Stanley Parable, but this game is far deeper than that. Like the Stanley Parable was funny, and like what is choice? What is what does it mean to play a game? Yeah. This is like. What does it mean to be a person who's interested in games? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, what does it mean to be on either side of the gaming relationship between developer and player? It's it's there are other games about games, but they are so often so tongue in cheek and really don't have anything to say other than you know, a, a witty comment about, oh, isn't, uh, you know, aren't treasure chests silly? You know, aren't aren't uh, aren't the rules of the game world strange and and dumb? But we love them anyway. But this is a game that has something to say about games, rather than just kind of making fun of or or pandering to players. I just love a game that can be explicit about its themes, back it up with mechanics, and back it up with a story. Yeah, yeah this is a game that is fun mm-hmm. you know yeah. like it, it's not like we've been we've been going hard on the theme which is great because that's that's the shining element of this game but it's fun to play like i really enjoyed my little army of howlers i really enjoyed uh even though i it took me many times i really enjoyed like 
my stupid jump across the lava pit that took me forever. I really enjoy the fact that all three of us solved, I think, every single puzzle we've talked about differently. Yeah. Like, I, that is a huge success of this game. Um, and I, the fact that we're like at an hour and 40 minutes right now on a game that is like three and a half, like, and we're this, we could go for another two hours if we wanted to. Like, this is such a unique game. And I'm so glad for the chance to play it. Mm-hmm. So. You can find this game right now only on Steam. This is available for, I think I said 15 bucks at the top of the show, and I actually think I may have been wrong. I think it's 20. It's worth every penny, uh, no matter what it costs. So uh, definitely download this game onto your computer. It'll run on basically anything. I ran it on my MacBook Pro. I ran it under Mac OS X, and it ran beautifully. A lot of games don't run well on OS X, but I had no trouble with it at all. And no need for a controller. Yeah. You might need a two-button mouse because the game does require you. Uh, like if you're trying to if you're trying to play this on a trackpad, you might have trouble because there's some things you need to do. It's remappable, but there's some things you need to do that require holding both left and right right mouse buttons at the same time. Uh, like I said earlier, it takes about three to four hours to play, and uh, you'll be glad you did. Uh, so. I had a lot of fun talking about this game. And of course, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Short Game. Uh, I'm your host, Reagan, and I. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Uh, you can, of course, also follow our show on Twitter at underscore short game or you can check out our website www.theshortgame.net where you'll find uh, information about upcoming episodes where we list as much as we're able what games we're going to be playing next Um, and there's a contact form we love to hear from you you can also leave us a review on itunes that actually makes a big difference to us we love people leaving reviews on itunes and rating the show Um, laura where can people find you you can find me on twitter at laura j nash and nate where can people find you you can also find me on twitter at nate stl and thanks so much for joining us again on this episode of the short game